KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. An increase in COVID-19 cases has put San Diego County back into the state's most restrictive purple tier. It means restaurants, churches, gyms, and movie theaters have to stop indoor operations. Also, school districts that haven't already reopened for in-person learning have to put their plans on hold. Some business owners say they plan to defy the state's mandate. At a press conference on Tuesday, San Diego County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher says county officials are working with local police to step up enforcement for egregious violations. No one wants to be punitive. No one wants any business or any entity to be closed at all. But the simple reality is we are now faced with an increase in spread and transmission uh, that threatens our community. The state has relaxed restrictions so that personal care businesses, including salons, barbershops, and tattoo shops, can stay open in the purple tier. The new restrictions begin this Saturday, and they'll stay in effect for at least three weeks. At the same press conference, County Supervisor Fletcher also mentioned that the county has launched a new behavioral health program. It includes help for first responders who might be suffering from trauma endured on the job. Fletcher says the stress of the job has taken too many people who put their lives on the line. We lose more first responders to suicide than we lose in the line of duty. And we have to do better. We have to do better to provide the support for mental health treatment. The program is named after San Diego Fire Captain Ryan Mitchell, who took his own life after enduring traumatic experiences on the job. It's Wednesday, November 11th. It's Veterans Day. This is San Diego News Matters from KPBS News. I'm Annika Colbert. Stay with me for more of the local news you need to start your day. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. President-elect Joe Biden has promised to drastically alter America's policy along its southern border. KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler says reversing four years of Trump administration priorities won't be so easy. The Trump administration has been almost singularly focused on border policy and the treatment of immigrants. It has used its authority in uncharacteristic ways along the border and sped along policies that have run afoul of the courts. And while President-elect Biden has promised to undo many of these policies, a new report this week from the nonpartisan Migration Policy Institute says it won't be easy and definitely won't happen as quickly as many would like. Doris Meisner is one of the authors of the report. They really did more than any other president has done in the immigration system. So unwinding it is certainly something that that a Biden administration has pledged to do, but many of them will take time. President-elect Biden has promised to end the controversial Remain in Mexico program, but he has yet to release any details on how or when his administration would do so. Max Rivlin Adler, KPBS News. 
Some low-income residents who are eligible for rent relief during this economic downturn are still waiting to receive money. iNewsource investigative reporter Cody Dulaney has more. The San Diego Housing Commission was supposed to send rent relief for eligible tenants by September 25th. But as of last week, over a million dollars still hadn't been spent and more than 400 households were still waiting for assistance. The commission blames the delay on the time it took to process applications. But the agency also had to temporarily stop sending payments four weeks into the program when it realized it wasn't collecting demographic data on recipients. Some of the federal funds being used requires that. The program will cover two months' rent for 3,700 households. That was iNewsource investigative reporter Cody Dulaney. iNewsource is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. San Diegans overwhelmingly passed Measure B, which will establish an independent commission to oversee the San Diego Police Department. But there are still many details to be decided about how that commission will work. KPBS's Claire Tregesser reports. The measure means the city will now have a commission on police practices, which would have members appointed by the city council, along with its own staff and an independent attorney. Most importantly, the commission will have the power to subpoena and conduct investigations into police officer misconduct and shootings by police, something the old Community Review Board didn't have. But first, the city council needs to draft and pass an implementation ordinance that will lay out how the new commission works, how many members it will have, and how those members will be chosen. Um, And also working with... um, the, you know, the primary unions that will be affected, we still, you know, we bring them into that process as well. Councilmember Monica Montgomery-Stepp strongly supported Measure B. She says the mayor and city council will also have to budget money to hire a full-time executive director, an independent attorney, and staff to support the commission, which will happen in the next fiscal year. You don't have to wait until July. That is not good enough for Andrea St. Julian, the co-chairwoman of San Diegans for Justice. We are looking for the city council to fund the new commission by the time the secretary of state publishes the new charter amendment so that it will have funding to operate. St. Julian says her organization plans to stay involved as the council sets up the commission to ensure community members' needs are met. Claire Tregesser, KPBS News. With schools closed because of the pandemic, school buses were left idle for months. But now, as schools slowly reopen for in-person learning, transportation departments have to figure out how to keep buses virus-free. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong went to one district to see how they're doing it. At Poway Unified School District's Transportation Center, 152 school buses are parked in long rows. Before the pandemic arrived in March, these buses transported more than 4,000 students a day. But the district's bus routes came to a halt when campuses closed. Now, months later, they're finally revving up their engines again. Since the district reopened its elementary schools in mid-October, buses have been taking about 500 students to and from school. Kim Benson is a bus driver with the district. She said she had some concerns at first about how the kids would react to the new rules. Were they going to be able to keep a face mask on? Are they going to be able to social distance themselves? You know, um, how they were just going to 
react to uh, screening them inside the mornings and everything. So I drive special needs and it can be a little bit more trying for them than other kids. But so far, Benson has felt completely safe during her routes. Students are pre-screened with temperature and symptom checks before boarding, and they're doing a good job of following the rules. She says it also helps that the department is being extra careful with hygiene. So what we do is, after each bus disembark, every child disembarks the bus and we come up, we just go up and we have to make sure that every seat is just sprayed down. Okay, and this has to sit on here for five minutes. In addition to drivers disinfecting surfaces after each trip, buses get a deep cleaning every 24 hours with a device that looks like it came out of Ghostbusters. Tyler Bouquet is a vehicle maintenance coordinator at Poway Unified. This machine puts out a fog, and so it's going to cover every corner, under the seat, anywhere in the bus is going to be covered in disinfectant places you normally wouldn't be able to reach by hand or you may miss in the process. He's wearing a backpack attached to something that looks like a hairdryer that shoots out an electrostatic fog. The electrostatic part causes them to stick to every surface in the bus. So you don't have to, even if you don't point at that surface, it's still going to fog out and touch everything and stick to it and make sure every surface is, uh, comes, comes in contact with disinfectant. These disinfecting measures have come at a cost for Poway Unified. The transportation department has spent more than $45,000 on COVID-related supplies. The district has also lost over a million dollars in revenue from the lack of bus pass sales. Tim Purvis is the transportation director at the district. We want our students back on our buses and um, uh, we don't want the parent feeling that they have to drive their child and their automobile and getting clogged in that traffic at our school sites and everything. We want them to have that same confidence that when they're ready to return their child to a PUSD school site, that includes the bus to go with it. They'll face an even greater challenge if and when the district opens middle and high schools. But Purvis says they're ready. Our driver is key in this, absolutely key. And the parent having that confidence that that driver is assuring the safety of their child. Other districts are also grappling with how to figure out bus operations. Cajon Valley Union, a K-8 district in East County, reopened all of its schools in September but lost 80% of its bus riders. At San Diego Unified, a limited number of schools have opened for in-person instruction and a small number of students are riding the bus regularly. For the most part, however, the district's school buses have been used to deliver food and school supplies. Joe Hong, KPBS News. Coming up on the podcast, Esther Sanchez is Oceanside's first ever Latina mayor. She spoke with KPBS about her new role and the needs of her city. And in honor of Veterans Day, we'll hear from a 95-year-old veteran who recounts fighting in the Pacific during World War II while also fighting racism back home. We was always talked of as boy, colored people, you people, never man or a person, you know. Both of those stories are next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD. 
Org. Oceanside is San Diego's third largest city after San Diego and Chula Vista. It has traditionally been a conservative town. It shares a border with Camp Pendleton, but Oceanside voters have elected a new mayor who is a Democrat. Esther Sanchez is the city's first Latina mayor and the first woman to serve in this capacity. She spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Allison St. John about her new role. Here's that interview. What, what's your reaction to being the first woman and the first Latina to be elected mayor? I think that a lot of what we have in Oceanside includes the magnificent diversity that we have. And growing up in Oceanside, um, actually my dad grew up in Oceanside. So when I grew up in Oceanside, there were maybe 30,000 people. And so I still feel that it's a small town, even though it's grown to be over 174,000. And for me, it's about the people. And I think that, uh, you know, people elected me because of who I am. But to be the first Latina and the first um, woman is truly historic. So you've been on the council for 20 years and you've seen a lot of changes. What does your election say about what you think Oceanside wants to see in the future? I believe that Oceansiders would like to see some of the small town kind of characteristics stay, um, which is what my sense of it is and the way I try to bring us back the character to maintain that character. Um, so I think that, that because of that, I, I think that uh, people want to give me that chance, they tend to want to give me that chance. Um, so in terms of, you know, we, we would like to keep kind of the mom and pop type character for the downtown and also kind of try to address the traffic in our, you know, in our more eastern parts, especially of the city. And we're, we're having a terrible time in terms of jobs. The jobs to residents ratio has really uh, gone far beyond what we should have let it go. So we need jobs. We need affordable housing. We need to address our homeless issues. And I think that that's what I've been talking about, especially the last few years. And uh, I think that the, that's what the people want. And that's why they elected me. Okay, so let's uh, talk about homelessness. What, what do you think is the first thing that needs to be done? We need to provide a shelter. And maybe I should sh say shelters, because it, it just can't be one. We have traditionally, the council majority has you know, suggested that the churches can take that responsibility over. We were down to just one organization, the Bread of Life, being able to do that. It's a very difficult thing to do because churches are not uh, set up to to have showers and do beddings. And, you know, with, with the funding that's available, it's five to seven dollars per bed. And it's that's just not something that anyone can do. So we need shelters. We need to be the leadership on this. Um, we do have some private individuals who've been wanting, wanting to, to do this since we have been pretty much inactive. So um, I'm thinking also day centers to try to get folks indoors and, and try to see how we can help, you know, lower that the numbers down to what is the most difficult to address. And, and that includes mental health issues. And what, what do you propose to do to attract more jobs to Oceanside? Well, it, it's, it, it all ends up being a land use issue. We have a general plan that pretty much our forefathers and sisters <laughs> laid out a plan that would include industrial, commercial, 
And several of those areas have over time been converted into residential. And so the remaining uh, industrial and commercial really needs to maintain um, that status. And what we need to do is, is develop job centers, which is what other cities have done. Um, this is something that we need to, to make as a priority. I think we have excellent staff. Um, we, we need to make the, you know give them that direction and, and work with staff in making that happen. So, Mayor Sanchez, are you concerned about the city's finances as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic? I am. And, you know, this is kind of a silver lining that we're, you know, becoming this bedroom community. In terms of our revenues, uh, the, the tax base has mostly relied on property taxes and, and, and sales tax. And we're just beginning to rely on TOT. And especially with, re- with regard to vacation rentals, that's something very recent. So we, we've actually fared pretty well because of that. But, you know, how long we can sustain this because we did do a job freeze and uh, pretty much eliminated our maintenance and operations funds. And we, we are spending some reserves. Um, how long we can do that? You know, I, I definitely join in, in others really appreciating the fact that we, we are looking at a vaccine that's what, 90% perhaps, um, that, and that will be free. I mean, I think that, you know, that news comes at a really, really critical time. Now, the Oceanside is becoming a destination for many visitors and TOT, the transient occupancy tax, could be affected too. Um, do, do you see the future of Oceanside as, as a destination for visitors? I, I do. I do, especially um, for uh, those that are choosing not to travel, say, outside. We're a, a hopping and skipping away from several inland places um, to come to Oceanside. We, we work really hard to maintain a clean beach, and um, we're at this time talking about how to uh, make it possible to have more sand on our beaches. But at the same time, I think, we, you know, this was an election. I think the voters are also saying, okay, don't, don't just think about tourism, think about us. Um, so it's a balance. It's, it's definitely a balance. And, and, and our, I think the key is to maintain a good balance. Now, you strongly opposed a new development in Morrow Hills, the North River Farms Project. The voters rejected it, and it would have added more than 500 new homes to the city's roster. Uh, the state of California is requiring the city to build thousands of new homes in the next decade to, to meet the growing population. Where in the city do you want new housing to be built? Well, what, what we have a lot of infill uh, places where, where housing, higher density housing could be built. And certainly it would make a lot better sense if it's near services, existing services. That's what made uh, this project out on our, our farm, on a farm, um, extremely unattractive. Uh, the staff, uh, you know, recommended against it because it did not, it was not going to be able to provide us um, really um, any requirements that we are being, um, you know, that the state is demanding that we fill. So it, it would have been in a place that had absolutely zero infrastructure improvements, no water, sewer, roads. It would have been a, a it, it certainly would have been an impact to the general fund as well as um, on services. I, I was very concerned about what it would do to water bills, for example, and uh, just the traffic The you know, over 7,000 additional daily trips onto 76 when it's already over, you know, congested 
you know, the fact that it was turned down by staff and also by the planning commission, uh, you know, really hit home that uh, this was not a project that that would, you know, take us to the next level. So now you are a Democrat. The the other four Oceanside City Council members who've emerged from the election are perhaps more pro-growth and development than yourself. And the mayor is just one vote on the five-person council. How do you plan to build consensus with the council? Well, as as you mentioned, I have been around for, uh, you know, 20 years on the council, but this is a place that I was born and raised. I um, Even beyond that, I had spent, I've spent time in San Diego and elsewhere in the county and developed relationships with other leadership. So what I'm hoping is that, you know, as a leader that has, you know, good relationships um, in the region, um, that I will, you know, really move us forward. Um, I think it is a message being sent to us. And, you know, there's another election two years from now. So, you know, it, it, it doesn't, you know, I, I don't feel that what um, happened just this past election is saying, oh, yeah, we we want these, you know, kind of radical growth issues to continue. I am not against growth. I am for um, smart growth and ensuring that we are able to continue to provide a, a certain level of quality of service, um, quality of care to our residents, um, whoever they are. And, and I think for me, coming from, you know, uh, one of the poor neighborhoods in Oceanside, I want to see uh, changes that will be proactive and provide even more opportunities to our, to our community. Our, our youth is very uh, diverse and the future of the city depends on their success. So um, it's, I think it's, it's time we, you know, reassessed and I'm hoping that we can do that as a, as a council and as a community. That was Oceanside Mayor Esther Sanchez speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Allison St. John. Now, in honor of Veterans Day, we'll hear from a 95-year-old former service member. He fought in World War II in the Pacific Theater and fought racism back home. From Los Angeles, Robert Garova reports for the American Homefront Project. On December 7, 1941, Japan, like its infamous Axis partners, struck first and declared war afterwards. Luther Hendricks was just a teenager when the attack on Pearl Harbor happened. He says he was determined to fight, to save his country from the enemy. Once President Roosevelt declared war, I went down the next day uh, to join up. I was told that they didn't take colors in the Marines. But as the war effort ramped up, the armed services began following an order from President Franklin D. Roosevelt to open all branches of the U.S. armed forces to African Americans. Hundreds of black enlistees were accepted into the Marine Corps, though they were segregated from white troops. We weren't, weren't allowed to go and train with the white Marines, which was just across the street from us at Camp June. We weren't allowed to go over there unless we had a white uh, officer to go with us. White enlistees were trained at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. Black men went through grueling training at nearby Monfort Point. There, servicemen like Hendricks endured substandard conditions and racism. We was always talked of as boy, colored people, you people, never man or a person, you know. But Hendricks says he and his fellow Marines were not deterred. America is the only country I know of, and I was proud of it. The segregation part was hard, but 
I paid it no mind because back in them days, everybody was gun-ho to defeat the enemy and come on back and get to your regular life. Between 1942 and 1949, 20,000 black Marines trained at Monford Point. The Monford Point Marines, as they're known, would go on to be celebrated in military history. Like the famed Tuskegee Airmen, they too were trailblazers. After training, Hendricks saw a long tour in the Pacific. I was in uh, Guam, Saipan, Iwo Jima, Okinawa. But Hendricks says while he was happy to return home after the war, there was still work to be done when he got back. We fought segregation fighting over there, and we fought segregation when we got back home over here. Hendricks says he would have liked to continue his military career when he returned from war, but was met with closed doors yet again. Hendricks would go on to work as an electrician's assistant and has lived in Vallejo, California ever since coming back from war. More than six decades later, Hendricks and his fellow Monford Point Marines were awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. Here's California Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi speaking at the ceremony in 2012. The time of these Marines in an age of inequality, breaking the color barrier in the Marine Corps took nothing less than perseverance, patriotism, and courage of extraordinary proportions. That was a great day. Uh, I just can't say enough about that. For his part, Hendricks says he was never expecting to be awarded one of the nation's highest honors, especially since he and his fellow black Marines were treated unequally by the service. We've come a long way. And I have people in service now, uh, like when I went back to Washington, come up and said, thank you for paving the way because I wouldn't be where I am without you. And that, that makes you feel good. You feel like it, it was all worth it. But as a country, we still got a ways to go. We see changes coming now, but it's slow. These days, Hendricks says he enjoys traveling as much as possible, seeing states across the U.S., before the pandemic anyway. And he's proud of his grandkids, great-grandkids, and great-great-grandkids. This Veterans Day, Hendricks says he'd like Americans to remember the determination of the Monford Point Marines and others during World War II. They deserve to be honored, he says. That was Robert Garova reporting from Los Angeles. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's it for the podcast today. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.